Well, certainly without apology and without excuse, uh, demonstrably stated over and over in the Word of God, it teaches that the Father, according to Ephesians 1.4, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says. In love, He chose us before the foundation of the world. In fact, the Bible's really clear in Ephesians 1 that in eternity past, it says that we were predestined for justification. It tells us that we were predestined, if you will, in Ephesians 1 for adoption. And all of that, in terms of his sovereign calling, is that it says to us it was based not on our own work, we know that, but that rather, Paul told Timothy that God saved us and he called us, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to them from all eternity. The Bible's clear on God's divine sovereignty, and we have such statements located in our doctrinal statement here in the church. And we embrace that joyfully because the Scriptures over and over proclaim that. However, Jesus clearly tells Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that he himself was responsible for his unbelief. In fact, in John chapter 3.11, it tells us there that Jesus said to him, you do not receive our testimony. So that even though God's sovereign in calling, he looked Nicodemus and said, you do not receive our testimony. In fact, he said in the next verse in John 3, 12, you do not believe. What's fascinating is that throughout John's gospel, you have the sovereignty of God in calling you, but at the same time, Set next to that truth, sometimes side by side, you have a strong command to believe the gospel that comes from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we would say as we've walked through this theology that God is sovereign, but indeed man is responsible. In fact, we are repeatedly invited to believe you are repeatedly invited to obey. If you're here this morning without Christ and you're visiting, you've never come to Christ, then freely the Scriptures offer Christ to you. In fact, Jesus said in John 5.24, whoever hears my words, whoever hears my words and believes has eternal life. Jesus said in John 6.47, that the one who believes has eternal life. This is the refrain of Scripture. There is an open invitation of the gospel. In fact, Jesus said after the raising of Lazarus in 11.25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall live. But you have those, those very inclusive statements of the gospel whoever believes. In fact, it was J.C. Ryle who said this strong statement. He said, everywhere in Scripture, it is the leading principle that man can lose his own soul. That if he is lost, at last it will be his own fault and his blood will be on his own head. 
Ryle said the same inspired Bible which reveals the doctrine of election is the Bible that contains the words, quote, Why will you die, O house of Israel? You will not come to me that you might have life. In other words, there's people who refuse to come to Christ. Ryle went on to say that judgment will prove that it is not the want of God's election so much as laziness, love of sin, unbelief, and unwillingness to come to Christ, which ruins the souls that are lost. End of quote. So God is sovereign, but man is responsible. In fact, beloved, you know this, that the Bible never says sinners miss heaven because they are not elect, but because, as it says in Hebrews, they neglect so great a salvation. So God is sovereign in salvation, and if we forget that, then we are in danger of becoming pragmatic, manipulative to secure results. On the one hand, he saves, and we recognize that truth in Scripture. But we need to be careful in our emphasis on God's sovereignty that we do not put an inclusive emphasis on that doctrine, and we become out of balance. And I've shared with you before how couple centuries ago when William Carey came to a missionary society in England because he felt called, if you will, to go share the gospel to people who have never heard it. A man said to him at that missionary society, sit down, young man. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. In other words, he grasped, did that man, God's sovereignty, but he missed the great portions of the Scripture that tell us to go to the entire world and proclaim the Gospel. But throughout Scripture, God is sovereign, but indeed man is responsible. Now the question would come to us, how do we balance passages in Scripture that stress God's sovereignty and salvation with other passages that address that you are commanded to repent and believe how do we on the one hand declare the new birth the new birth being born again namely that god is sovereign and in that act of the new birth man is passive but then at the same time hold man responsible to believe in the gospel how do these truths come together how do you reconcile those truths and the answer we can say is you don't reconcile those truths. In other words, you can't harmonize those truths. If you emphasize one side of the equation at the expense of the other, then you destroy the other or you even destroy both truths. Listen, beloved, both of these truths are taught in the Scripture. You can't change them. God is sovereign, man is responsible. You can't alter them. You can't tamper with them. You need to believe both truths because both are true. And beloved, this will become especially clear in the passage before us this morning. Would you take that Bible and open it to John chapter 17? John chapter 17. We, of course, find ourselves in what is appropriately called, I think, the high priestly prayer because it tells us in the book of Romans, it tells us in the book of Hebrews, that even now our Lord is interceding for you. So if you come in the, 
to the service today, even in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship and just hard things, our Lord Jesus Christ is interceding on your behalf right now before God the Father. Let me read our passage for you, and I'll read 6 through 10, which is where we'll be today. Jesus is praying here. You know that. He, it says, I'll just, in verse 1, he had spoken these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. So he's praying. But look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, now, that, now they know that everything that you have given me is for you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. They have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. May God bless the reading of the Scripture. And so he's praying. He's praying before his heavenly Father, and this prayer is so deep, so so profound that it's really impossible to to plumb the depths, but we do the best we can as to what's been revealed and given to us by the Spirit of God. And as I mentioned uh, a week ago, that I really believe that the disciples heard him praying this. I believe as they're moving towards Gethsemane, they were in the earshot of this prayer or maybe gathered somewhere as they're walking there and it's recorded for us by the Apostle John. And so he prays to the Father, and then the structure is this, the big purpose of where we'll go the next few weeks, three ways to grasp this. He prays for himself first in 1, 1 through 5. Then he prays for his disciples, the disciples that are before him in 6 through 19. And then thirdly, he prays for all future disciples that will come, and that's praying for us in 20 through 26. So he prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, we might say the apostles, and then he prays for all future disciples. Now we looked last week that he first prays for himself in verses 1 through 5, and the focus of his prayer was that the Father would be glorified through the Son's death. He asked that he himself would be glorified, but he wasn't praying selfishly. He was praying that as he moved towards the cross in an act of obedience, that as he glorified God in his death, that Jesus would receive the glory that was once his before the foundation of the world based on who he is and what he's done. And we looked at that next week. So move here with me. Secondly, that he prays for his disciples. He's praying for the disciples in 6 through 19. Now, directly, you might say that he's praying for the apostles who are before him. Certainly, the implication applies to us. He prays for the ones, very clearly here, that God gave him. And so, beloved, as he pours out his heart in prayer at the very close of his earthly ministry, just hours away, he reveals two vital links, one 
as he prays to the Father, he reveals, does Jesus, the Father's sovereign calling of the disciples, if you will, and then he also prays and records for us in that prayer, does John, the response of the disciples to his ministry. So Jesus, on the one hand, reveals the Father, okay? And then secondly, there's a response given, if you will, by the disciples as he prays to his ministry. Let's dive into the text. It will just say here first that Jesus is the revealer of the Father. He is the revealer of the Father. And so he's praying. Now look at his prayer and look what the purpose of his ministry was in verse 6, his earthly ministry. As he's praying, he says, I have manifested your name to the people. Just there, for stop for a moment. He manifested the name of God to your people. It, it, he, he's speaking of his work. As he's, as he's praying, he's praying to his Father, namely regarding his earthly ministry, that he accomplished what he came to do. Look back in verse 4. He said in that prayer, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In other words, he fulfilled the work. In fact, I mentioned that that word, having accomplished the work, is the same root word when he prayed and said just hours later, it is finished. And so, so clear in his mind is the coming cross that he can say even before it happened, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, one of those works that God the Father gave God the Son was to reveal his name. And the word there for manifested means to reveal. It means is the idea to make clear. It's the concept of to make known. In other words, the ministry of Jesus Christ is he came for this purpose, beloved, to reveal God. Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, revealed God. Now look at the text again in verse 6. It says there, I've manifested your name to the people. In other words, he gave them the name of God. But, but we know from past teaching, certainly the name of God associated back in the book of Exodus chapter 3 was the name Jehovah, if you will. It's also mentioned, look down in your Bible, in 1726, Jesus said, I made known to them your name. But we know that when we look in the Scripture and we look in the Old Testament, that God's name is paralleled with, if you will, his character, his nature. And so here what Jesus is saying, just these are his words, he is the revealer of God. He is the revealer of his person, God's person. He is the revealer of his nature. He is the revealer of the person and work of God. And that's why he said to the disciples in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen who? God. 
because he's, that is who he is. In other words, beloved, you know this. There are not other religions. There are not other ways to God. There are not other, there are not other prophets who speak on behalf of God. Jesus Christ is that long-awaited prophet, Deuteronomy 18, that reveals to you, that reveals to your children, that reveals to your grandchildren the very person and nature and character of the Godhead, if you will, and here specifically, God the Father. You remember when Moses said, Lord, in Exodus 3, who will I say sent me? And when they ask me, what is your name, what will I tell them? And you remember in Exodus 3, he said, I am who I am, and he revealed his name there. But again, the revealing of that name at the burning bush was the character of God. Now, if you look back in John 1, just follow this track. John 1, that Jesus is revealing the nature of God. It has to be one of my favorite statements in all of the Gospel of John. But after the word was God in 1.1, that word, if you will, in John 1.14 became flesh. But this statement in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God the Father, you haven't, you can't see him. But then he said, the only God who is at the Father's side, that's the person of Jesus Christ, verse 18 said, he, speaking of Christ, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. I love that statement. Jesus Christ has made known the unseen God. In seeing the person of Christ, you see the character and nature, if you will, of God the Father because they are co-equal, co-eternal, and of the same substance, if you will, the same essence. But Jesus Christ has explained him. So Jesus Christ reveals the nature, the person, the works of God. In other words, Paul said in the book of Colossians that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form in Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says of Christ that he is the exact representation of God. Here's that first point, is that Jesus is the revealer of the Father. He reveals God the Father. Other people don't do that. Other religions don't do that. There is one God in Deuteronomy 6.4, Distinct, if you will, in three distinct personalities. But there is one God, and here God is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. You say, now, who did he manifest and reveal himself to? Well, look back in John 17. It says that I've manifested your name, watch this, to the people, it says, whom you gave me, out of the world. In other words, I manifested your person, nature, work, and attributes, not to everyone, though the gospel goes to everyone. Just you read the statement with me in verse 6. He says, to the people or to the people whom you gave me out of the world. This is the sovereign eternal, electing, choosing of God. 
Here, it's in that phrase, you gave me. In other words, we are, if you will, God's love gift to the Son. You are a love gift that he gave to Christ. He gave you, if you will, to the person of Christ. Now, this is not new here. Look back in 17.2. He says there, and since you have given him, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ as he prays, authority over all flesh to give eternal life, watch this, to all whom you have given him. There it is again. In other words, there's a group of people to whom the Father gave to the Son. In fact, if you go on, look at 17 verse 9. He says, does Jesus in this prayer, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Sovereign election. Look down in 17 verse 12. While I was with them, I have kept them in your name, which, here it is again, you have given me. And you could go on in verse 12 next week. We'll look at that. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. Not one of them. In other words, if the Father gave the Son a love gift before all eternity and before the world began, that if He gave you to a Son and His Son died for you, and you were given to God the Father, and God gave the Father to the Son, you, then listen, you could never be lost. But you have these statements. Look down in 17.24. It says there, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. So he's praying, if you will. I've manifested your name, Father, your character, your attributes, to the very ones that you gave me from all eternity. In fact, look over to John chapter 6. Let me touch on that there. This is not new, obviously, to us. In John chapter 6 and verse 37 there, he says, interesting, in 36, 636, I said to you that you have seen me, and, let me, and then he puts this on him. Yet you don't believe in me. You've seen me, but you're refusing to believe. But then he said in 37, all that the Father gives me, that's you if you're in Christ, will come to me. And then he opens it up. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look over at 644. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So, beloved, he reveals, if you will, the Father to the very ones that the Father gave him from all time. I mean, this is just that thought that we are chosen out of the world. Ephesians 1, 4, in him, he, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says that God has chosen you from the beginning. In other words, you belong to God. In fact, look what Jesus said now back in John 17 verse 6 as he's praying. 
I manifested, I revealed your name, your character to the people that you gave me out of the world. And then he says in verse 6, yours they were and you gave them to me. I love that. Sovereign calling, chosen, elect if you will. And obviously, just as we come to communion in just a moment, it is not rooted in anything intrinsic on the disciples' part or on your part. It is not credited to you because of your own faith. You are not elected and chosen by any merit of yours. You were elected and chosen by the pure grace of God. This is the clear teaching of the Scripture. So he revealed, if you will, the Father to the very ones you, if he's called you out. In fact, look back in John 10, just one moment. In John chapter 10, and this is how Jesus is praying. He's praying this. In John 10, you remember there at the Good Shepherd, but I thought this was worthwhile. He said in John 10, 27, my sheep will, it says, hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, interesting, he says in 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, verse 29, has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And so your salvation is is eternally secure. God the Father gave you to the Son who manifested His name to you. You say, well, for what purpose? Look back in John 17. He, he did that because it says in verse seven, chapter 17, verse 2, that He would give eternal life to all whom you have given me. And so if you're here this morning and you get a partake of communion, it is because God the Father, look back in 17.6 now, gave whom you gave me, it says, out of this world. And this is a, we'll look more at this, excuse me, in a couple weeks. 18 different times in chapter 17 alone, he says you were redeemed out of this world you were redeemed you were chosen out of this world and of course he means there the world's evil system he called you he chose you he elected you but i want you to see something in the text jesus not only reveals the father but also demonstrated in this text is the human response to his sovereign calling that even though he called from eternity past, put your eyes on the end of verse 6. It says there that they have kept your word. Now, to me, this is side by side. God's divine sovereignty in calling you. But put right next to it is a response by the disciples. And so I take you as he revealed the Father to secondly, the disciples respond. And beloved, what follows here is evidence that one belongs to God. In other words, 
the disciples are marked by, at least here, three evidences that demonstrate that he called you out. Now, I want to be clear here, you know this, that these are not the root of what saves you. You're not saved by these evidences. You're saved by his grace. But you clearly are demonstrating the fruit of that calling. You say, well, Scott, how do I know? I mean, if he chose me from eternity past, then how would I know if, if I'm elected? In fact, there's some of you, because I've been pastoring a long time, who would even at this point almost stay away from Christ thinking you're not elect. And so there's, there's fear that engages your heart. And I always think that that question is more of a moral issue if you want to submit your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But here, those whom he's called, here's what I'm trying to say, respond. And there's a human element in this, not that you're pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, but that you're responding to the invitation to the call of the gospel. And the root of that calling is demonstrated in the fruit or evidence of your life. You say, well, Scott, what are those three evidences? Let me show you. Here's the first one. It says in verse 6, they kept his word. You have kept your word. Jesus is praying that. So here as he's praying, the disciples are marked by their obedience to his word. They're marked by obedience to his word. They kept his word. Now, beloved, I just had to pause in my study this week because these disciples, as you know, are not perfect. We know that. In fact, what's amazing to me, as he prays to his father, he's dealing with their response to his ministry. Some didn't believe. Some called him Beelzebub. Some walked away from him, but not these guys. They kept his word and What's amazing to me is in just about an hour or two, they will flee from him in the garden. They will come back together, but they were, if you will, their totality of their life, their heart, though not perfect, not even mature, they kept his word. And Jesus has said this before, but just a couple places. Look back to John 14. In other words, this is a characteristic this is an evidence of someone who knows God. They keep his word. You remember in 14, I'll just take you back, chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, you will, there it is, keep my commandments. In other words, election or his choosing is never an excuse to walk in disobedience. If you've been redeemed by God, redeemed out of the world, and he caused your heart to be born again, then it is going to be marked or characterized by here keeping his commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That doesn't mean we keep them perfectly. But it does mean that the direction of your life, not the perfection of your life, is ever moving, wanting to honor Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't that your heart this morning? I mean, even when you sin, don't you just want to honor him? And when you sin, when you sin, you, you want to honor him. And so it leads to confession and it leads to a desire 
to walk in his word. But he said that. Look at 14 verse 21. Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. So here is the evidence. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. In other words, there's a desire. It's evidenced by a desire to follow forward with him. Look at the the opposite of that desire to keep his word is in 1424. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And so there's more passages there, but these disciples, as Jesus prayed here, said in 17 verse 6 that they've kept your word. Now he puts it on your word, the Father's word, because the Father's word was given to the Son, and the Son revealed, if you will, the words and the works of God. And so these disciples here are evidenced in their salvation by their ability and their desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, they would scatter momentarily, but there's grace evident that all of them would return, would they not? They would all die a martyr's death with the exception of the writer of this gospel. How encouraging it is that Jesus is ever so patient with them, ever so patient with us. But here's the evidence of that. But there's more evidence. Would you look in the text in verse 7? Look how Jesus prays. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and that they have believed that you have sent me. So the disciples, first, are marked by their obedience to his word. Secondly, the disciples are marked by a belief. This is you. That Jesus was sent by God. And so as you look at the implication given to them in their response, they are marked by belief that Jesus was sent by God. Now there's three important verbs here, if you will, and I could just show them to you. Look what Jesus prays. He says in verse 7, now they know, okay? In other words, they know the truth. That everything that you have given me is from you. Then look again in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have, here's the second term, received them, so they know that what he gave came from God. Secondly, they, verse 8, receive them, that you've come to know in truth that I came from you. And thirdly, here's the third one, and they have believed that you have sent me. There's the terms. The disciples are marked by a belief that God sent the Savior. They believe that he is co-equal with God, that he is co-existent with God, that he is co-eternal with God. They believe that. They believed his words. They believed his works. This is what a Christian is. You say, well, Scott, what does that evidence look like? Well, it looks first in obedience, that there's a lifestyle of continual pursuit. And I'm making a comparison between someone who's grown up in our valley, 
who trusted Christ but has walked away from it completely. And it could be that that's some people in your family, that that somehow they were placed in a covenant at an early age, but they've walked from that covenant. The evidence of a truly saved life is obedience. Secondly here, it is marked, if you will, by a belief that they know the Savior, that he gave, God gave the Son his words, They've received them, in other words, by faith, and they've put their trust in him and have believed in him. Now, I want you to notice something. Watch this in verse 7. It says here, now I know that everything that you have given me is from you. Everything that you, I know that everything that you, the Father, Jesus is praying, have given me, the Son, is from you. But specifically, what is the everything? Look at verse 8. For I have given them, here it is, the words that you gave me. And this is repeated throughout John's Gospel. The the, The Son only says what the Father gave him to say. The teaching, the ministry, the words, the works of Jesus Christ are directly from the Father. Beloved, you know this. There is no other Savior. There is no other one. This is the great prophet, if you will. This is the last prophet. This was the prophet promised in Deuteronomy 18. He's spoken to us in these last days in his Son. That if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And he has the authority to give eternal life to you. And the reason that it's bound up in his words and his works is that here... He's preaching, he's teaching the words, verse 8, that you have given me. Let me just show you a few places of that. Look back to John chapter 7. Look back there just for a moment. I think he's just praying what he's taught on in the earlier part of John's gospel. But in John chapter 17, or excuse me, 7, verse 16, when he was speaking to the Jewish people, he answered them, my teaching... 716 is not mine. Well, whose is it? But his who sent me. In other words, he's very clear that Jesus wasn't just some man on earth espousing some type of truth. His teaching came directly from the Father. Look over just a couple chapters to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus will say there as he's in that discussion on being the light of the world in 828 Jesus said to them when you have lifted up the son of man then you will know that I am he that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the father taught me in other words his words are the very words of God the father look down at chapter 8 verse 40 and now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth, what truth? That I have heard, 840, from God. In other words, he's speaking, if you will, the very word of God, which is why you hold the word of God in your hand. Look over one other place in John chapter 12. This has been such a key verse throughout the book. In John chapter 12, where he was talking about that he came to save the world. 
It's interesting, when he came to save the world in 1244, he cried out and said, whoever believes in me, there's an inclusive opportunity for the gospel. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but him who sent me. Look down at 49 now. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. And now this statement. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What a tremendous description. So this is what a believer is. A believer walking in the truthfulness of being called out by a sovereign God is evidenced. It's not the root of salvation, but it is the fruit. And the fruit that comes, not in perfection but direction, is marked by a keeping of his word. And secondly, marked by a belief that God the Father sent God the Son. And a believer then knows that, number one, has received that, number two, and number three, has believed that. In other words, there's a human response here. Now, again, God's sovereign to direct us towards that response, but you know that, you've received that, and you've believed that. And beloved, if that's you this morning, as you come to the Lord's table, then rest assured of His redeeming of you. And so this is what the Scripture teach. Peter said in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, that's what a believer affirms. And there's a third and final mark there. It's that a disciple is marked by bringing glory to Christ. Look over at John 17. This is a fascinating statement, verse 10, when he's praying for them in verse 9, he says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. And don't get lost in that he's not praying for the world and we shouldn't pray for the world because we know that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know that. We know that when he was talking to the woman at the world, woman at the well, that Jesus said that he is the savior of the world. But here he's in his prayer and he says, I'm not praying for the world, but verse 9, for those you have given me, for they are yours. And then he says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. And who can say that but only Jesus Christ? And then he makes this statement, and I am glorified in them. Look at that statement again. I am glorified in them. Amazing, it comes full circle. He's praying that the Father would return him to the glory that was once his. He's praying that as he moves to the cross, as he dies for the ones that the Father gave him on the cross, that the Father would be glorified. But then the Father's glorified by giving to the Son a people, if you will, who are marked and evidenced by obedience by a belief that, they were, that he was sent by God. And then thirdly here, that our life would be marked by bringing, at this point, I chose the word carefully, not to glorify God, which is a biblical principle in other places, but to glorify Christ. Do you realize 
that as you walk in obedience to him, as you know him, as you receive him, and at salvation, as you continue to know him and continue to believe on him, your life here will bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's a wonder of all wonders that Christ can be glorified through us, insignificant as we are, that your life redeemed, called out of the world, has as its chief end that the world would see your good works and at that point glorify God. But here he says in 1710 that I am glorified in them as you continue to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we've been given a, a wonderful gospel, have we not? So on the one hand, God is indeed sovereign. He gave to the Son a people. And yet at the same time, there is a response humanly by these disciples, evidenced by their obedience, evidenced by their belief, and evidenced by the fact that their life is no longer caught up in the world system, but it gives glory to Jesus Christ. May that be true of us.